On New Year's Day 2021, Mark Meadows, the Chief of Staff to the President of the United States, emailed a YouTube video to the Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen. The video promoted a bizarre conspiracy theory known as Italygate, asserting that a tech employee at an Italian aerospace company had worked with the CIA to use U.S. military satellites that flip votes on election night for Donald Trump to Joe Biden. There was, to be sure, not a shred of evidence to support this fantastical claim. Nevertheless, Meadows wanted Rosen to have the Department of Justice investigate the matter. Rosen forwarded the YouTube video to his deputy, Richard Donahue, who responded with two words, pure insanity. The exchange can be found in a new Senate Judiciary Committee report that documents how then-President Trump and his top aides repeatedly pressured the Justice Department to take steps to block the rightful winner of last year's election from becoming president, thereby allowing Trump, the loser, to stay in power. Will the public ever learn the full extent of Trump's unprecedented steps to thwart American democracy? And how much will Trump's now well-documented efforts connect to the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th? We'll talk to Norm Eisen, a former White House lawyer and special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee, now with the Brookings Institute, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Lizagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Okay, so when I read the passage in the uh, in this new Senate Judiciary Committee report about the YouTube video, all I can think of was the time my then 11-year-old son, who spends far too much time watching YouTube videos, came to me and showed me the video he had just watched asserting that Australia does not exist. I think he kind of knew that this was bogus, but he did ask me about it, and I took him to the Globe and showed him, yeah, there's Australia, it exists. Now, I think he came back with a question along the lines of, yeah, but how do we know that's real? Which kind of sums up the mindset of Trump world with these truly ridiculous conspiracy theories they had about the election. And, you know, it's a pretty sorry state of affairs to imagine that at the highest levels of the U.S. government, people were buying into it. I think one of my favorite moments in the report that just came out is a a moment in late December when uh, Trump is pushing the Department of Justice regarding a variety of allegations about voter fraud when they respond, look, these really aren't credible. Trump responds to them and complains you guys aren't following the internet the way I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I got to say that part of the report, the Italian aerospace dude working with the CIA to get satellites to change the voting machines or whatever, actually reminded me of when I was a copy boy at the Washington Post when I was in college and answering phones on the city desk. And there was a guy named Mr. T who used to call in with tips. And he used to always ask for Woodward or Bernstein. And Carl was long gone by then, but Bob was still around. But I would say, well, Bob's not in today. 
And he said, well, I got a really big story for him. I said, well, just give it to me and I'll pass it on. He said, okay, you ready for this? I said, yeah, I'm ready. There's a cut above my left eye and a UFO is trying to land in it. <laughs> so, yeah. I yeah. mean, look. Did you investigate? We, we, uh, we did, and <laughs> right. sure enough, it was true. But if, uh, I Which couldn't publish it. Suppressed I couldn't story. publish it because I am part of the conspiracy. Yeah. I'm part of the conspiracy. Yes, uh, but look, it you know, it also made me think. You know, it was years and years after Watergate that we learned about the you know crazy Nixon's paranoid ravings and anti-Semitic rants. You know, on those on those tapes and all of the other insane things that were happening um, during Watergate. But God, I mean, in the in the age of Trump and, and social media and everything else, uh, we learn about it in real time. Although I wonder what else is out there that we will learn about um, in the coming months and years and, and decades that will That's continue to shock. That's what we've got shock. the January 6th committee for. Um, and we'll see how much uh, success they've got. They've, you know, we're going to be talking to Norm Eisen about this in a moment, uh, but there are going to be legal battles uh, royale for quite some time over getting documents and testimony. And I wonder how, as these kind of study revelations come out and the, the Senate Judiciary Committee's report, it you know kind of goes into details of nine specific contacts between Trump and the Department of Justice that all seem to add up to a concerted effort to really pervert the administration of justice in order to undermine the election so that Trump could continue in power. I mean, that's certainly the, the top line of the report. And then you've got the January 6th committee, which is, you know, kind of set up to gather vast quantities of information from the people who organized the January 6th rally. But what I wonder about is, is it breaking through? How much of an impact is it having? Are the same, are we all just kind of retreating to our same corners on this? Because to read the Judiciary Committee report and then the Republican Minority Report about what happened is to essentially be on two separate planets. And, you know, we, we've got a lot of litigation that's about to start over whether or not Steve Bann is going to have to turn over documents or Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, is going to have to turn over documents. But who's it going to persuade? Well, has the former acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, and Richard Donahue, uh, the acting deputy attorney general, who were in the middle of all of this drama, have they testified yet? I mean, have there well, they, been... They, they, they testified they, they, to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, yeah, they're quoted extensively. They no, cooperated. public yeah. hearings where there's well, that's some... that's up to January 6th, yeah. Public I mean, hearings the where there's some drama yeah. and where yeah. you can put some, you know, flesh and blood on these stories as opposed to just, you know, things that come out in, in the New York Times or wherever. I mean, it seems to me that, that the committee needs to actually hold these kinds of hearings if they're going to dramatize it. And to your point, uh, Victoria, about getting this stuff to actually break through, at the very least, they need to have he public hearings. Yeah. Well, look at look at Mike Pence's comments on Hannity the other day. Yeah, Pence was the most threatened victim of January 6th. They were shouting, hang Mike Pence. He, you know, because he wouldn't go along with what Trump wanted him to do. And there he was 
telling the conservative audience on the Sean Hannity show, well, too much is being made of January 6th, and these are people who are just trying to use it politically. The Democrats are trying to use it politically to tarnish Donald Trump, and he wants to focus on the future. So that gives you a pretty good idea uh, when even the guy who was most threatened by the rioters is kind of willing to turn the other way. Meanwhile, you know, his boss, uh, the president, who was kind of soaking it up all on television, didn't even bother to call him to see how he was doing and yeah. if he was OK. Yeah, well, it's pretty simple. <laughs> Pence wants to run for president. Yeah, he's got to he, he's got to make peace with the Trump base. And, you know, it's as it's as simple as that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. Dan- Danny, you're a boss. If you ever sent an armed mob after one of your reporters, uh, you'd, you'd call afterwards to apologize, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I uh, will see. <laughs> Clyde <laughs> uh, never would do that. But hey, we got a lot to talk about with uh, Eisen. So um, let's get to it. All right. We've now got with us our uh, old friend and frequent skullduggery guest, Norm Eisen of the Brookings Institution. Norm, welcome back to Skullduggery. Mike, Danny, it's such a thrill to be back with you and with my old and dear friend, Victoria, added to the mix. That (laughs) is super. That is super fun. This is my first skullduggery since you all finally got some class in the joint. Yeah, well, we've been trying. (laughs) <laughs> Don't give us too much credit here. Although it's a lot, even for it's a lot even for Victoria <laughs> to clean up the act of the two of you. Even she's, she's slumming it. She's slumming it, Norm. She's slumming it. Um, all right, lots to talk about here, but let's start out with this new Senate Judiciary Committee report, which has a lot of new nuggets and details that we haven't seen before, and some we've read about, but they are fully documented here in this report. And One that is getting a lot of attention is the January 3rd meeting at the White House with then-President Trump, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and the entire top leadership of the Department of Justice. And the first thing Trump says, according to this, uh, the testimony uh, documented in this report is, he's addressing Jeff Rosen, the acting attorney general who has up till then, refused to do anything to follow up on Trump's, you know, claims about the stolen election. And the first thing Trump says is, one thing we know is you, Rosen, aren't going to do anything to overturn the election. That sounds like a confession by Trump himself that he was trying to overturn an election. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's so many different things. We were joking before we started. We were going through what we thought was notable, and I, I volunteered that. And Isakov said, that's my first question. So here's the reasons uh, it jumped out at me. One is that the critical question here and it's going to matter for the coming prosecution of Trump, possible prosecution of Trump, likely, perhaps, we'll get into it. 
I get a lot of uh, skepticism. People are so disillusioned. So on page 38 of the report, according to Rosen, this was Rosen's testimony. This, of course, is the uh, January 3rd Oval Office meeting. And um, one thing we know is you, Rosen, aren't going to do anything to overturn the election. The implicit in that is that Trump, you know, knows uh, it's like behind the scenes in one of those social clubs where the mafiosi get together. Trump knows what he's doing is wrong, and he's using these people as pawns. A second reason that I thought it was so important, it sets up the abuse that Trump is in cahoots with Jeff Clark, the acting head of the civil division, who is Trump's main tool at uh, the department to overturn the election illegitimately, against the law, against the facts. This week, I was part of filing the first major ethics complaint against Clark, and many of our, I did it with 30 other ethicists and former bar presidents and others, and one of the main uh, points in there is that Clark was the leader of this uh, anti-democracy faction within the DOJ. And then the third reason that this jumped out at me is because of what comes next on page 38 of the report, which is the struggle of Trump to throw his desire to throw DOJ's leadership out. This was the closest uh, that we have come to a, a coup at any point in the United States, not a military coup. Trump was at attempting to stage an insurrection uh, under the thin, thinnest fig leaf of legality. So coup by law or by the abuse of law, to be more accurate. This sentence is one of the most striking in the whole report. So just one quick follow-up on that, because the other part of the account of that meeting is that it was made clear that the entire leadership of the Justice Department would resign en masse if Trump went through with his plans to install Clark as acting AG and do the bidding and do the bidding he wanted them, him to do. And it wasn't just the, you know, the, the upper echelons of the Justice Department, Richard Donahue, who was the deputy at that point, uh, you know, uh, said that U.S. attorneys would resign, and Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, and uh, his top staff were prepared to resign as well. So basically, you know, one could look at this two ways that Trump was com obviously completely, you know, deranged and going well beyond anything acceptable uh, for a president of the United States. But in terms of how close we came to a coup, you know, you can say once again, his own administration refused to go along with him, never mind everybody else. So the guardrails actually were holding. I don't disagree. You know, I, I have been, and I, 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 some of my Twitter followers, I don't I know why they continue to follow me because I so vex them. Maybe that's part of the pleasure pain of Twitter, like a sore tooth that you can't help palpitating with your tongue. Some of my Twitter 
followers are very critical of me when I point out that there's actually a history of successes in the grand battle of the rule of law versus Trump, a case for the American people. You were kind enough to have me on to talk about my impeachment book, the United States versus Donald Trump. The United States has won a lot, and I think it's going to win again. We're going to talk about some of the accountability that I believe is likely coming. So this is a, uh, the glass is half full, but the half empty part is that Trump got Clark to agree with him, that Clark wrote that letter, that on the outside, there was an outside consigliere also, uh, John Eastman, a very distinguished former Clarence Thomas clerk, uh, former law school dean at Chapman in California, an established Federalist Society character, who was the outside equivalent of Clark. We also, by the way, filed a bar complaint against Eastman this week. So we went after the two ringleaders, myself and a group of others, our wonderful uh, organization, uh, multiple organizations that were involved. So that's a glass half empty. And, you know, the other part of the challenge Isakoff is that because of the fealty of the cult of Trump, including the MAGA faction in the mainstream of the Republican Party, which after this, we haven't talked about the minority report that goes with this report yet, but the Republican, the MAGA faction is now firmly in control in the House and the Senate Republican caucuses. That's the glass half empty. There are, I saw a poll this week that there are 21 million Americans who believe that a violent overthrow of Joe Biden to install the properly elected president, Donald Trump, would be appropriate. So we've got some major challenges. I think that just like the guardrails held here, they are going to continue to hold, and they're kind of steering us towards, with this bumper car of the uh, judicial system, steering us towards some heavy-duty accountability for Trump and his cronies. Well, to your point, Norm, about the uh, MAGA faction being firmly (laughs) entrenched, the quote from Chuck Grassley that accompanied uh, the minority report was sort of astonishing. He said that Trump's actions were, quote, consistent with his responsibilities as president to faithfully execute the law and oversee the executive branch. It's kind of an Orwellian view of what his responsibilities are. But I I wanted to ask you, you mentioned Eastman, so this other figure who has become prominent um, or infamous, uh, mostly since Bob Woodward and Robert Costa came out with their book. But there have, you know, in in this report, there's also discussion of another uh, figure who I had not heard much about, Congressman from Pennsylvania. Yes, Yes, Congressman uh, Scott Perry. Perry. Scott Perry, yeah, uh, who was also uh, working the levers at the Justice Department to try to get this election overturned. He was and, the facilitator. And, he and was the facilitator Clark and actually Trump. brought Jeffrey Clark to the Oval Office. And I guess I'm wondering as a legal matter, the more the sort of circle widens, the more people that are involved in this effort, does that... Does that matter at all? I mean, in terms of making the case that there was a conspiracy to overturn the government, or or is that not not relevant? Well, 
you know, this is this is probably an overly technocratic, legalistic qualifier to the answer I'm about to give you. It depends on which the conspiracy is in the eye of the prosecutorial and grand jury beholder. So we really need to sharpen your question, Danny. Who are the likely people who will investigate or prosecute the conspiracy here? Congress has no prosecutorial power other than, we'll get to the one six subpoenas, other than uh, if you refuse to honor a legitimate subpoena. So the Trump cronies are now giving them some contempt powers. So does it matter for the congressional investigation? Obviously, it was very important. It was not a throwaway. It showed the, the, the rot had spread to the Congress in this Senate Judiciary Report. So yeah, that's a kind of a narrative of conspiracy. For a legally actionable conspiracy, is it bad enough for DOJ to prosecute federally? Probably not. There could be criminal referrals. There already has been an ethics referral on the Senate side as a result of this report of Clark, who we, who I just told you was, I was part of filing an ethics complaint earlier this week. Durbin filed a very similar one. God bless him. I don't think you're going to get to a situation based on the allegations about Perry in this report, making the introduction of Clark to Trump, and communicating with Donahue, you know, including for likely for the complicating factor of the speech and debate clause. So, but uh, the last question is whether it matters for the place where the conspiracy is most likely to be prosecuted, and that is Georgia by the Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, at Brookings with a very distinguished bipartisan cast of characters. We produced a 107-page report, which I know you saw because my self-promotion gene had me running all over <laughs> TV, radio, internet, you know, flogging this thing. But it Where was does that stand, it. Norm? Where, what, I, we haven't heard much was about what it. Fannie Willis yeah. is doing. What, uh, I mean, well, has there been grand uh, jury subpoenas? Have they been taking testimony? They started out with uh, sending document preservation letters, mm -hmm. principally to witnesses inside of Georgia. They, I, they've then been conducting interviews in the latest news. Oh, she's hired... Um, experts, including a RICO expert, which is very important because, of course, RICO is, is kind of a, an uber conspiracy statute. That's Georgia, Georgia's uh, Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. It allows you, if you have two or more predicate crimes, to charge an enterprise and the individuals who have gotten together for crimes. You know, she is going to be much less deferential. I don't think all the Perry, all of Perry's actions enumerated in the report are defensible under the speech and defense clause. She's going to be much less deferential to that. Whether Perry's a part of it or not, we know she's looking because she said so. We know she's looking at Lindsey Graham's call into Georgia 
And we know that the Clark materials would have hit Georgia. So um, that's the most likely place, whether it's charged as a conspiracy, as a RICO violation, as a um, solicitation of election fraud by Trump that's aided and abetted by others. I think Georgia is the most likely place. And they're moving. She's hired the best RICO expert in Georgia. She's tried big, sprawling, politically controversial RICO cases. She tried the Atlanta school teacher cheating scandal, school teachers, as a <laughs> RICO conspiracy. And she won. She got convictions. So I think that's the most likely place, Danny, that we're going to see these conspiracy questions play out. And this report is very important for her because this this crew and the one six committees report is going to be important for her. Oh, that's another answer to Mike's question. She's communicating. It's public. She's in communication with Congress to benefit from their investigations. So believe me, we're not the only ones who are pouring over this, these two documents today. The, for sure, for sure, the Fulton County Day, DA is as well. And there's a lot of good stuff in here for her. So I, I want to pivot back to the Senate Judiciary Report real quickly and ask a question about what we can learn about what's going to happen in 2024 from it. Because, you know, Trump's play was to try to get DOJ to issue a letter essentially saying that they've got substantial questions about the legitimacy of the election, that there's a lot of fraud out there, and then Trump was basically going to take it from there, you know, and and steal the election once he got the kind of imprimatur of DOJ concern. So my question is, is he setting up exactly that sort of play in 2024 or in 2022 as well, just chaotic lack of confidence in elections, allowing him to, or others, to just declare themselves the winner and actually get into office? Vic, I do think that it's what's going on now is material for 22, maybe even for some of the off-cycle elections in 21. Who knows what will happen in Virginia if there's a close election, for for example, and, and the Republican doesn't win. I think Trump is using it to maintain his relevance by driving and controlling the base. That's part of the way he exerts his reign of terror over the Republican caucus, and in particular, the MAGA faction within the Republican caucuses federally and in the states and localities. I think the most important document for anticipating, you know, the impact of uh, the Senate Judiciary, and Vic worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee as a staffer for Herb Cole. Isn't that right, Vic? And and Dick Durbin. (laughs) And Dick Durbin. So I think the most important document is the minority report. And when you see there, you know, the way, I mean, those shocking, shocking words, President Trump did not exert improper influence. What? Those nine contacts that the majority discovered, not to mention the Meadows additional contacts, that's not improper influence. Listen, I was in charge of the Obama White House of drafting the memo on White House contacts of establishing the limitations. We have not seen anything like these abuses of DOJ since the Nixon administration. 
And for then, for the minority to say President Trump did not exert improper influence on the Justice Department, and he says that they say in here, President Trump's concerns centered on legitimate complaints and report of reports of crimes. I mean, the whitewash is so appalling, but that's coming. Remember how they reacted when uh, when Bill Clinton met Loretta Lynch at a, in an airplane at yeah. one point? Yeah, yeah, on the tarmac. Yeah. On the tarmac. So, Norm, let's pivot to the legal battle that is looming that you alluded to a little while ago. The January 6th committee issued subpoenas to Mark Meadows, uh, Dan Scavino. Who they can't find, we should point out. Who, they haven't who been is, able to who, serve Who they have not been able <laughs> to find. The social media the guy at the Dan White House. Yeah. If, only they yeah. could serve, if they could serve him over Twitter, maybe yeah. it would work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kash Patel, who uh, was the acting chief of staff to the acting uh, defense secretary in the uh, election overtime, and uh, Steve Bannon, the longtime advisor to Trump. Trump quickly instructed his former aides not to comply with the subpoena and uh, asserted uh, executive privilege. And just hours ago, as we record this on Friday, President uh, Biden uh, said that uh, he would not assert executive privilege for these subpoenas, which sort of defines a big part of the class that we're about to be uh, that, you know, that, that is going to happen, which is and raises this question, who actually gets to uh, assert the privilege, the current president or the former president, which I don't know whether that's been tested. But before we get to that, why don't you lay out how you think this is going to unfold over the next uh, weeks and months and potentially years? Well, if it's years, um, <laughs> the system, the courts will have failed us if it's years. Took two it years on again, I'll just say. Well, dude, I'm a little more painfully aware of that than yeah. some others on this podcast. <laughs> since I, I helped with the amazing Barry Burke, the brilliant, staff of the Judiciary Committee, the members of the Judiciary Committee, the leadership of the House of Representatives, their staff, and the wonderful Doug Letter, who is the uh, general counsel of the House of Representatives, and an old foe of Victoria and mine. We litigated, remember the Ferrara case, Victoria? We litigated a case against Doug Letter when we were both starting our career. All right, Eisen, you're filibustering. Answer, yeah, answer Clyburn's question. Okay, so that wonderful that wonderful crew designed the McGahn strategy. Uh, it doesn't have to take that long. And in retrospect, we were too, and I'll take this on myself for not making a bigger noise about it. We were too leisurely. And it was the courts. It, we wanted to move it, but the courts did not want to go that slow. There is an alternative model. It doesn't have to take years. I wrote about this on CNN Opinion yesterday in a preview piece that so far, my two predictions in there were that these four cronies would not cooperate and that Biden would waive executive privilege. So, so far, I've got a pretty good track record in my predictions. In this okay, piece. but Norm, isn't the great variable on this, in other words, whether or not the January 6th commission can actually aggressively enforce these subpoenas and get these people testifying and turning over documents to them, isn't the great variable Merrick Garland? Uh, no, 
so uh, now I'll answer the original question. I can't believe that you let me filibuster that long. I did keep going after I was ruled out of order the first time, however. We can edit so these the podcasts, answer... by the way. Just like <laughs> well, then I'll, I want to eat a snack. Can we have a snack break? <laughs> so the, here is the answer to that question. That Congress has the control, is the captain of its own ship, because they can go to court and seek civil, seek to enforce the subpoenas civilly. As you know, Vic, criminal contempt, the outcome is you're put in the poke, you have to pay a fine. If you're willing to sustain that pain, you, it doesn't pop the information free. So they have the civil option, they have the criminal option. Merrick Garland, no one knows how he'll prosecute. And if they ask, he wouldn't tell them. We've all had our dealings with him. I've known the guy for three decades. You know, it is an unknown what he'll do. I do think it's contemptuous given the position that Biden has taken on the documents. I think Biden's decision this afternoon is setting up. You're going to see findings moving pretty quick in the House. They're going to vote to authorize civil and criminal. And it doesn't have to take. Here's the point that I wanted to make. It doesn't have to take as long as McGahn or the Mazars cases. In Watergate, because the courts got it that it was a matter of the utmost urgency, and because it was backed by the demands of Congress for speed and the demands of the press and the public, they was four months from the Jaworski subpoenas, less than four months yeah, from the Jaworski no, subpoenas to the Supreme Court. No, totally different set of facts. What drove the Watergate uh, ruling by the Supreme Court was that the special counsel, Jaworski, had in, already indicted the former attorney general, the former chief of staff, the former top domestic advisor to the president, and there was a pending trial. Which, which related directly to the communications that they had with the President of the United States. And there was evidence that was directly relevant to that trial. That's what drove the opinion in uh, Nixon versus USA. And you had pending indictments. We don't have an indictment of Mark Meadows or Cash Patel or Steve Bannon on the books. There's nothing that gives the same level of urgency to this. Trump has already said he's going to assert executive privilege. That's going to go through a federal judge. There will then be an appeal to the Court of Appeals. There will then be appeal to the Supreme Court. It's a different set of issues, and I don't see how you're hoping is going to speed this up as it goes through the courts. Well, let me make the case to you that this is as or perhaps even a more compelling circumstance. First, the investigation that the 1-6 committee is undertaking, I believe, is even more important to the fate of our democracy than those Watergate prosecutions. I think we're in a Weimar moment. And so, number two, if the 1-6 committee feels that way, as a matter of separation of powers and giving due credence, respect, comity to another branch of government. If Congress, it's for Congress to make the determination of urgency, not the courts. In Watergate, that was a criminal prosecution within the judicial system. Here, the uh, constitutional structure militates respect. So I think there are a set of countervailing considerations. Uh, a third one is 
that here it's life or death. That was just about whether people go to jail. And you know the thing that is going to die as the clock runs? This Congress. It expires next December. And so that issue needs to be pushed. I think if Congress demands speed and the public and the press demand speed and you get the right judge, um, you know, the McGahn, we resolved issues in McGahn of the House's right to testimony. We resolved issues in the Mazars case of the House's right to document. Those issues don't need to be relitigated. So this can go faster there, too. Okay. I could but, say but, more, but, but, but there is a but case Norm, for speed. Norm, we're, but uh, so far, we're just talking about process here, how quickly this can be litigated. But let's just talk for a moment about the merit, the underlying merit. So two questions. One is just the, the basic question of uh, whether Trump has, uh, you know, there's any merit to his argument that this, uh, these documents and testimony would be protected by executive privilege, uh, internal deliberations, work product, you know, national security, whatever it is. That's, so that's one question. And, and then what Congress's argument is. And then the second question is the one I asked at the outset is, who owns the privilege? I mean, does a for, can a former president assert privilege on behalf of the presidency or not? And has that been tested in the courts? This is an under-litigated area. We've never had a court squarely decide what happens when a current president and a former president disagree about the privileged nature of the former president's documents. You just made a case for why this can drag on. If it's well, untested, it means there's going to be a case a of first impression. Novel issues. Off. You cut me <laughs> off before I could preemptively rebut you. Merrick Garland, right baby. Ahead. The next, the next, but the next point is that while this precise issue has not been squarely decided, in the critical precedents, like the um, Nixon v. GSA case, the logic of it is that the ultimate decider is the current president. In fact, they say in Nixon v. GSA that the privilege belongs to the United States not to any person. The, only Biden speaks for the United States. So I think the shape of the doctrine is that Trump gets to consult. It's in the statute. It's in the regs. Trump gets to consult. He doesn't get to choose. That issue can be decided fast if the courts want to. We need to make them want to. Well, okay, wait. We're focusing so much on just these subpoenas to these four people. Meanwhile, the one six commission has issued subpoenas to like fifteen social media organizations, thirty-five telecom places, you know, Ali Alexander and the head of the Stop the Steal, you know, the women for America First who yes. organized one six. So so I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact that the January sixth commission does not rise and fall on whether or not they get Steve Bannon's documents. And by There's the a way, lot more you going get, on. If you get Steve Bannon's testimony, what do you think you're going to get? I mean, you know know. what you're going to get? Yeah, exactly what you can read in any Michael Wolff or Bob Woodward book. 
Right. The guy yeah. is the biggest blabber in the yeah, universe. Yeah. That's when he's talking to authors who he thinks. But you he, have to understand to their books. But. You have to understand. Victoria and I lived it. The two of you have reported on it for decades. We, Victoria and I, lived it from the inside. The logic of these investigations requires you to attempt to secure the testimony of the critical witnesses. And it is better to try and fail than not to try at all. And Victoria would strike, there's four waves that Victoria identified. And it's important to, because it's so overwhelming if you don't tease them out. There's the initial set of discovery demands to the telecoms and um, the other outside parties. There's the first wave to these, the four cronies of Trump. There's the second wave to 11 a rally planners and organizers, many uh, like Carolyn Wren have ties both to Trump or the RNC and to the rally. And then there was the fourth wave yesterday, Ali Alexander, one of his colleagues and the Stop the Steal organization itself, three more subpoenas. So there, all of those, both the documents and the testimony for everything will have been due almost all by the end of October. A couple testimonies in the very beginning of November. This committee is not waiting around. And that's why I think it's going to be queued up for rapid. Okay, I want to make I want to make a couple of points. I want to make a couple of points. First of all, Kleiman and I uh, maybe haven't known Merrick Garland as long as you have, but we've known him for quite a while. And the one thing, one prediction I can make based on my knowledge of, of, of Merrick Garland is he's not going to launch criminal prosecutions of these witnesses until the courts weigh in and rule with some finality about whether or not they have legitimate privilege claims. He's not going to short circuit that. So that means Means you're hostage to however long it takes the Supreme Court to finally rule on this. Number two, the question is, at the end of the day, where does all this go? Clearly, we have documented that Trump was like, you know, doing all sorts of improper things in pressuring the Justice Department, you know, to promote his, uh, uh, investigate his stop the steal nonsense. But the real essence of what the committee is looking at is whether there was a connection between what Trump was doing behind the scenes and overtly and the violence and mayhem that took place on January 6th. And we had our old colleague Mark Hosenball on a few weeks ago who'd done a story for Reuters saying that the Justice Department federal prosecutors in all their investigations of all the people who did commit crimes on January 6th, who did commit that violence, they've had access to their social media accounts. They've had access to their emails. They've had access to their uh, uh, Twitter accounts, everything. And they have yet to find evidence of coordination in the violence between the, the violent rioters and the White House. They haven't found instructions from people in Trump's orbit telling them to commit the violence and mayhem that they did on January 6th. And I wonder if that gives you some pause as to whether or not the January 6th committee, and by the way, it's a committee, Victoria, it's not a commission, is going to uh, find something that the Justice Department, after eight months of investigating, hasn't been able to find. <laughs> 
Well, first of all, if you want to find evidence of uh, Trump's um, direct conspiracy with the insurrectionists, just watch the video of his speech at the insurrection. Yeah, but we litigated that in the second impeachment trial. We, you know, we know it what hasn't he said. been. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think I do think that there is more to be learned here. Um, on the DOJ side, you know, you have because of Fifth Amendment and other privileges, you have some limitations in, in getting all of the information you need. I feel certain DOJ has not subpoenaed Mark Meadows or Dan Scavino for their contacts with the co-conspirators for the insurrection. We're, I'm not saying they're their co-conspirators. That's what we're trying to figure out. There's a lot of that's why these 11 subpoenas to the Carolyn Wrens of the world, these uh, rally organizers are so important. What is the network of comms that happened? I don't think we're at the bottom of that by any means. And there's huge questions about what Trump uh, knew and did and didn't do and when he knew and did and didn't do it. So I think there's a lot of work yet to be done. The enforcement, as I said, I share your skepticism here. I don't think that there's going to, you know, I'm dubious about whether there'll be federal prosecution. I've written that I think there should be a federal investigation of Trump and his coterie. I don't think you're going to get that on this record. So we're really looking to that DA. And, you know, I have my big report. I've thought it through. I, there's a reason I spent months with six geniuses working on that report. Uh, because that's where that is the most high value accountability. And the information that the committee derives will go straight to Georgia and they can plead the whole enchilada as a RICO conspiracy, including with unindicted co-conspirators. Didn't you make a, a lot in that report also about uh, the Cyrus Vance investigation in New York? That's a different that seems report. to have gone nowhere. What um, do you mean gone nowhere? Well, I you know, it got, the, you know, a tax violation by the chief two financial weeks officer. After, yeah. Look, to, you know, a, a mere, a mere uh, short interregnum of time after that report was published, lo and behold, uh, the the state of New York did charge the Trump organization. They did charge Weisselberg, Trump's closest financial associate with tax fraud. The investigation is ongoing. He hasn't, he hasn't flipped. <laughs> he has not yet flipped. They reportedly just found boxes of documents in the basement of one of the uh, Trump executives. You know, the jury is still out on New York. If Trump knowingly supervised a massive tax fraud scheme. He can be charged for that. Let's see. But Georgia is a different issue. Georgia, when you look at the evidence, it's a different issue. And the same predictions that I made about the tax scheme in New York, I am saying there is substantial risk. Trump is going to get charged in Georgia. You look at the law, you look at the facts, it's hard to understand. I actually agree with you on that. And I said okay, that months right. ago on this. All right. I, I still haven't gotten an answer to the, <laughs> like the most fundamental question that is out there right now, which is the merits of the arguments from the Trump side and then from from Congress you there. Well, you do. You know, no, not on. Is, no, 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 no. The answer is here's the merits. Fine. I'll answer you. It all comes down to the question of who the privilege belongs to. That is what No, no, that's a different question, Norm. That's a different question. I uh -huh. at some point 
a judge is going to have to rule and is going to have some balancing test weighing executive privilege against Congress's. Uh, no, why not? No, that's not going to happen because the judge is going to say the privilege has not been asserted. The threshold question of whether the privilege has been asserted or not. You have to assert it. Okay, so first, rule all right. It. So first, they have to rule on the question there, of whose privilege it is. But then they're no going to have to get to that. No, it's dicta. If they rule that the privilege ultimately belongs to Biden, that there is a legal obligation to consult with Trump, that Biden has adequately consulted with Trump. There's a 60-day, you know, the White House has set a schedule and includes a 60-day period for Trump to object, that the White House is adequately, adequately consulted. That's the end of the analysis. They don't have to reach that next question, Danny. If they did, or if they do, then I believe that the in this, you get into a very intricate analysis. It's not just executive privilege. It's not just one privilege. It's a basket of privileges. Some of these cases have an attorney. Some of these issues have an attorney-client dimension. If you get to him on that balancing test, I believe that is where you get into the time-consuming analysis because the test needs to be applied basically on a retail basis. All question right. by question, like, uh, document discussion. by document. But you don't, I think it'll go. It's the norm, Supreme Court or bust, right? Yeah, I mean, this, this Supreme Court or bust. Should, should it's Supreme Court or bust. on lawfare. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, I mean, I was getting, I was getting frustrated. I was getting other platforms. I was going to say, we're getting into the legal weeds. We love our. I was going to say, I was getting frustrated that Norm wasn't asking, answering my question, but now that I heard him actually use the word dicta on Skullduggery. <laughs> he is going to get a Skullduggery t-shirt. All We're right. going to make sure. Right. Hey, Mark, we gotta, we gotta our wrap, producer. My... What's, are you large? Oh, what these... size are you? Large. <laughs> Extra large. Uh, I'm Extra large. larger than All I right. used to be. I'll tell you that. You mean all my appearances on Skullduggery? I was eligible for a T-shirt, and I never heard it until you finally now. you you unlock you unlocked it with the dicta. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Final word. Uh, and, you know, as I was listening to that final discussion, there I was remembering the uh, the famous words of uh, Roy Cohen, "Who's tell me who's the judge?" And yes. um, and let's remember that the ultimate judges are going to be the Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative majority and three Trump appointees on it. So just something to remember as we um, try to uh, prognosticate what's going to happen. But anyway, uh, Norm, uh, lots more to talk about the next time you're on Skullduggery. <laughs> so, um, you know, next time we'll get you your T-shirt. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Danny. Vic, how great to have you. <laughs> on what was already one of my very favorite podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>